As a free, not-for-profit service, Cradio requires the support of people like you to help keep us going in our mission. To donate, visit cradio.org.au slash donate. Conversations with Daniel Noor. Tackling the tough questions on cradio.org.au. Hello Cradio listeners, my name is Daniel Noor and when I entered the Catholic Church on September the 21st, 2013, I brought all my confusion, anxiety and uncertainty right in with me. As a young journalist searching for the truth, every week I'll be interviewing an expert on a hot topic and trying to get straight answers on the moral, political and social issues of the day. I invite you to join me and to have your questions about today's tough topics answered as well. This is Conversations with Daniel Noor. This episode is the second in a series on the global refugee crisis. We've heard much said about the connection between climate change and human displacement and the way that increased carbon emissions and the rising global temperatures means that whole communities are forced out of their homes or unable to make a living there. I'm very privileged today with... Uh, my guest, who is Nagaya Chorley, the Manager of Advocacy and Communications at Caritas Australia. Nagaya has had a long career in this work, previously doing the same role at UNICEF Australia, and has worked with communities in Africa, the Pacific, and Asia on a range of human rights issues. Nagaya, I'm very happy to have you with me today. Thank you, Daniel. It's wonderful to be here. So, Nagaya, as I mentioned, you know, we're seeing a, a scale of refugee displacement today that some people, I think, understandably find inaccessible, overwhelming. 60 million people, we're told by the UN, have been forced out of their homes. And some observers have suggested that the countries that bear major responsibility for this crisis and the way that the exacerbating factor of climate change is attributed to them uh, are not taking enough responsibility. And I'm wondering if you can just lay out for us in general terms the connection between climate climate and global displacement? Because it's one that I, I'm sure lots of people don't really have very clear yet. It's really interesting thinking about climate-induced migration because not unlike climate change, I think we're grappling to think about what does it look like, what does it mean, is it real? And the interesting thing is we, we often talk in terms of the future, of climate change having future impacts. And likewise, I think with climate displacement, we think in terms of the future. But what is so fascinating is that climate change is happening now and as we know it's hitting poor communities throughout the world the hardest but as too is climate induced migration on an extraordinary scale so as you as you said rightly so you know we're seeing the largest movement migration and displacement of people that we've seen since the end of the second world war that's going on for a range of issues um, and it is, it's hard for people to come to terms with that. It's a significant challenge that we're facing as a global community. But on top of that, we've got a large proportion, a large number of those people who are being displaced directly because of climate change. And that's happening in two, two ways. Some of those people are being displaced because of what we call fast onset issues. So an example is an extreme weather event, a cyclone, an issue that means that people have to suddenly move, are suddenly displaced. But then there's also slow onset issues around climate change, like for example, rising seas, which means that over a number of years, people are less and less able to live in a particular part of their country and they often need to move either internally or in some cases to a different country. So it's so interesting because when we have this image of of the mass movement of people around the world we think of you know the classic image of refugees of people you know fleeing persecution 
But in fact, the number of people that are already displaced mm. as a result of climate change is three times the number of people displaced by conflict and violence. So it's already happening and it's happening at scale. So each year, over the last six years, 21 million people have been displaced because of climate change, mm. which is extraordinary. And just to give an indication of the way in which that number is growing, that's twice as many as we saw in the 1970s. So it's happening, it's real, and it's happening at scale mm. at the moment. I think a lot of people hear that in the game and are totally paralysed mm. with a feeling of powerlessness and mm. fear. Sure. Is it uh, not true maybe that there are some misconceptions with that in mind mm. about the extent to which humans are responsible for this and that that's been really politicized in a way mm. and i'm wondering if you can speak maybe to some of those misconceptions i mean one that um comes to mind is the i suppose some people call it bogus science that's mm. out there about the, the way that you know climates have been changing since time immemorial and that there is no necessary you know guarantee uh that demonstrates that humans are directly responsible for the climate change that is being claimed mm. today and when you are faced with that very tedious argument and i think that a lot of people are growing increasingly uh, tired with that kind of uh, point of view what can you say to to bring to mind that this is happening as you say and it is real i think first and foremost it it isn't a debate anymore i mean the science is in the science is clear 97% of scientists um you know absolutely emphatically believe that this is happening so just to give an equivalent analogy that's the same as the number of say health scientists for example medical scientists that believe in the connection between tobacco and certain cancers lung cancers being the most obvious one so the the science and the scientific evidence is overwhelmingly clear what we have is some vested interests trying very hard and spending a lot of money on mudding the waters but it's not a debate it is it is not a debate we we know what's going on we're seeing the impacts through our work at Caritas Australia we work in 27 countries throughout the world mainly in the Asia Pacific region and on a daily basis we're hearing stories people are saying life has always been hard but it's getting that much harder there are more extreme weather events they're coming at a much greater ferocity they're harder to recover from and also most importantly so many of the communities that we serve both in africa in large parts of asia and also in the pacific they rely on the land they rely on the oceans for their livelihood and when you have unpredictable weather patterns that wreaks absolute havoc for them so this is having a profound impact as we speak could you give us just some examples of that i think it places in people's minds in a really clear way that for communities that depend i suppose on the land as mm. you say there is no plan b so in our region what is some of the work that caritas is doing and what are the countries that are most affected mm. Well, uh, we are in an interesting position in Australia because, of course, we're in a region that is especially affected by climate change. I mean, as we know, everyone and everything is being affected by climate change, and that's only going to grow. But we also know there are certain countries who are disproportionately being affected now and are set to disproportionately be affected in the future. So we're in a region, of course, where we've got the Pacific. So we've got low-lying nations who are especially vulnerable to rising sea levels and also extreme weather events. These are, are countries in the tropics. But we've also got countries throughout Asia, the Philippines, Bangladesh, India, Nepal, that are also extremely vulnerable to flooding, 
um, to extreme weather events. And again, we're already seeing this. This isn't something that's going to happen in 20 years' time. You know, last year we saw three quarters of Bangladesh underwater, mm. um, which was terrifying. It was a country of, of 30 million people. Exactly. And I think one of the wettest mm. and lowest countries in the world. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah, so, I mean, Bangladesh, a country already struggling with a range of, of poverty-related issues, um, has climate change coming in and compounding those challenges. So these are significant, but um, there is there is so much that can be done, which I know we're going to get on to. I just wanted to share a story that many of us at Caritas Australia heard recently, which I think in many ways um, visually brings alive what it is we're talking about. It's an extremely confronting image, but it's a very powerful one. We had a wonderful woman um, visit us called Claire Anteria, who set up the Kiribati Climate Action Network. Um, so she's an e-Kiribati woman, she's passionate, she's an advocate, um, she knows her community well, but what she's experienced and her, her people have experienced over, over many decades now is both sea level rise, um, but also, um, as we've talked about, more and more extreme weather events. And she described one particular cyclone that, that hit the country. Thousands of people fled up to a kind of community centre and a lot of the women brought with them eskies thinking we're almost certainly going to die but at the very least we can try to enable our babies to survive by using eskies and I mean that is a scene of, mm. of absolute horror really. You know all of us in OECD countries so these are industrialised countries who are primarily responsible for carbon emissions, for global warming, for the impacts that are affecting primarily at this stage, poor communities, we have a moral responsibility to be taking this issue very seriously and doing everything we can to rapidly reduce um, our fossil fuel mm. usage. Nagea, you have spoken about moral responsibility mm. and it brings to mind, I think, a question that a lot of people have. Mm. Why is Caritas working on climate change? And, and I think that is a question that people who have traditionally associated this the humanitarian arm of the Catholic Church mm. and part of the largest humanitarian network in the world uh, have not associated them with this issue because it seems to be an issue of the, uh, the progressive side of politics perhaps when, frankly, the Catholic Church has, has often been seen to be a conservative force in politics. Can you make that connection for us? And, and you said that you see this as a moral issue. Could you speak to that? I think a lot of people are grappling. Why would a, a large international aid and development agency be focusing on climate change? And of course, we are so privileged because we have this extraordinary, pioneering, frankly, um, humble, visionary, courageous Pope who has really set the way on this issue. So as many people know, in 2015, um, Pope Francis produced and released this defining document, Laudato Si, um, and what it does so beautifully and with a deep theological basis, it sets out the relationship between the poor and the earth. And Pope Francis speaks powerfully about we need to now hear both the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor, but also the ways in which these, these things are intricately linked. Everything in Laudato Si is about how we're interrelated, that we're part of one ecology. So just to give some tangible examples, I've already touched on the fact that the poor are already being disproportionately impacted by climate change. And that's because of geographic position. That's also because often the infrastructure can't withstand these major weather events. And it's because whenever there is a major crisis, often people with means, with money can flee, they can set up a new home if need be, but it's 
often the poorest, the most marginalized that are left the most vulnerable in these moments. But not only that, there's also a deep relationship between our thinking about development projects per se and development progress and climate change. So just to give you an example, in the last 10 to 20 years, we've made significant progress as a global community across a range of human development indicators. So we now have millions more people accessing clean drinking water. There's millions more young girls in particular who are able to access education. We have made phenomenal progress as a community on HIV infection rates and survival rates, which is extraordinary. All of those things, all of that progress is put at risk because of climate change, because of the ways that climate change acts as a threat multiplier and compounds poverty. We are actually regressing in relation to our overall development progress. That's terrifying. And it's an issue of policy, you say, to mm. some extent, and we probably to a great extent. I've read that the United Nations Refugee Conventions, I mean, as a, as a, a proposition, as a way of responding to the enormous impact of displacements that we've established is caused by climate change, uh, might have to enact policies, say, that mean that they have all countries in regions affected abide by a common set of policies for handling and assisting refugees, and that all countries that have not signed the United Nations Refugee Conventions could consider joining them and should do so now. Now, our country has signed those conventions, and yet, um, I think much to the shame of, of many Australians, we've been held in disrepute and there has been a high level of criticism from the international community mm -hmm. about Australia's conduct on the refugee issue. Now, you work in advocacy, Nagaya, so what would you advocate to our leaders and to our politicians who may well be listening that needs to be done on this issue? Uh, perhaps as a way of responding, as you said, to the, the moral impetus that is uh, put forward by the community of nations. Are you referring here specifically to people who have been displaced as a result of climate change or refugees more broadly? Well, I think we're seeing climate refugees in particular, uh, and especially in reference to this issue. Mm. In Kiribati, for example, I know that there's been an emigration of climate refugees, yeah. and also know uh, islands of Papua New Guinea, places like Bougainville in particular, have also seen a displacement. So in reference to that issue in particular, please. You know, as always, it's not unlike, again, the health analogy that prevention's always better than cure. And the thing about climate change, of course, is we're not going to be able to cure it. So prevention's even more important than ever. It's all about prevention. So what I would say in response to that, the greatest imperative for all of us, and I think especially for industrialised countries who, have, who are responsible for um, global warming, is to rapidly reduce our usage of fossil fuels, our production of fossil fuels. So that's just an imperative. We can keep talking about the issue, we can keep talking about the problem, but at the end of the day, every one of us is contributing to that problem and that problem growing exponentially over time. So that is the number one imperative. But there are other things on top of that. We can also invest heavily in um, climate mitigation and climate adaptation for developing countries. So this is ways to, the adaptation part is ways for them to build resilience in the face of, of a changing environment. We can also start to think, and as I say, this is not future focused, this is happening here and now, but about how we support communities that, that, that need to migrate to do so with dignity. We had a wonderful President Tong in Kiribati formerly who um, was an incredible advocate on this issue. He, he talked about the fact that his people are deeply connected to the land, they're connected to the ocean, they have a strong cultural and religious connection. 
However, the, there is a very real um, prospect of needing to relocate, but it must be done with great dignity. So there's got to be legal mechanisms that enable people to migrate. There needs to be forward planning about what that migration looks like. And they need to be welcomed into other communities. New Zealand have already put their hand up. Fiji have put their hand up. Australia needs to be thinking, how can we support communities? impacted by these issues to migrate with dignity over a period of time. Mm. I mean, Nagay, it's often been said that the countries most affected by this mm. are the ones who've contributed least. I mean, they don't have enormous fuel, fossil fuel mm. industries or, or anything like that. Often they're, I suppose, pastoralist, you know, cultures. So with that in mind, and you've spoken about how we could respond to the emigration of people who are forced out of their traditional lands because they are sinking or life there is no longer tenable. Mm. But what about just from a, a higher policy level? I mean, what about the use of fossil fuels in this country? So many countries around the world have moved beyond the kind of so-called ideological debates and on both sides of politics are appreciating that this has to bypass partisan politics. This isn't an issue of left or right. This isn't an issue of conservatives versus progressives. This is an issue that affects everyone. And in so many countries, we've seen that understanding really sink in and governments on either side of politics take really strong action. Unfortunately, we haven't seen that in Australia. This has been deeply politicised, an issue that shouldn't be because it's about our essential safety and well-being, which one would hope is what government is there to protect and uphold. But it has been politicised. Um, and as a result, we've gone back as a country. Um, so I think what I would say is that there needs to be tremendous pressure exerted on our government to take very distinctive action on this issue, to uphold their commitment and their obligations under the Paris Accord. But we cannot wait for government to save the day. It's not as if the cavalry are going to come in and, and you know save us all from ourselves. There's also a lot we can do working around government. So we ourselves as individuals, we're all consumers. We all have banks. We can decide which banks we bank with because, of course, many banks invest in fossil fuels. Others that are more ethical don't. Mm. We can look at our superannuation funds. We can work with our organisations, our respective organisations, and talk to them about divesting from fossil fuels. And there are also so of course, as we know, there are a million things we can do in our daily life that both promote a more sustainable future for our children and grandchildren, but also help us think about our interconnectedness with all of ecology and our reliance on nature, our need for nature and our need to better honour nature. Mm -hmm. Well, Nagaya, that is um, a really, I guess, hope-filled prospect and with reference to the kind of daily choices that people can make in terms of where they bank, for example, where their super is held. You know, for d developed countries like ours, these are choices that have weight. Um, I think maybe we can post some resources to that end on the link and in the bio for this podcast on the Cradio website. You, you've also mentioned that there's a level of personal responsibility. And as we draw to a close now, Nagaya, I would love if you could tell us if it's still matters. We've read that in over 800 years, the earth has literally, I mean, recorded history in modern history, never been this hot. And in fact, that 2016 was the hottest year on record. Is it too late? No, I don't think it's too late. And interestingly, if we're looking for inspiration and hope and solutions, 
it's again looking back at those countries that are being the most heavily impacted. So there's a, a group of 47 countries who are the most vulnerable to climate change who have got up at the UN COP meetings and spoken about their commitment to making rapid change. There are so many communities right throughout Africa, for example, that are helping um, create um, and fund off-the-grid energy projects. A classic example is solar panels. Countries like Portugal, India, even China are leading the way on renewable energy. So that there is so much going on around the world. And I guess the challenge is for us to replicate when we can, for us to better leverage those opportunities, for us to celebrate those examples, particularly those examples of communities leading the way in really addressing this, this issue. And I think understand that in some ways Australia is, um, is not the norm. We are not following even other OECD countries in really grappling with this issue. Other countries are, are far more progressive and determined on this issue and are showing really tangible kind of movement towards um, renewables and away from fossil fuels. And and our, I guess it's incumbent upon all of us to, to support our country back onto that track so that we can play our part as a relatively wealthy country, showing great leadership, particularly in a region that's so especially vulnerable. And Nagaya, Chorley, thank you so much for joining me today. You've spoken so strongly and so clearly about this um, and the way that, you know, we can make little daily choices to mitigate, I suppose, our contribution to climate change, especially the rise in global temperatures and this country's carbon emissions, and that we also call on our leaders to do the same. Incidentally, I am aware that there is a community climate petition that has recently been signed and it was the largest multi-faith and multi-electorate climate petition in Australia's history. Was it, was it just Caritas that led on that charge? No, it wasn't. It was a range of organisations, different faith organisations. Um, there was Christian organisations. There was also um, Buddhists, um, monks, Hindus, Quakers. Mm. So people of all faiths came together and said... This is an issue that affects all of us and, and we need to not think in silos, we need to not think in isolation. This is an issue that needs to unite us to come together to really think about how do we collectively work together to build the solution. So it was a fabulous um, grassroots um, petition. Um, a number of politicians were actively engaged and really responsive and supportive of that grassroots movement. Um, it received a lot of uh, media exposure, which was fantastic, and really showed that this is an issue that people want to see strong government action. Mm. And I think they can find out more on that count. It would be on the Caritas website, caritas.org.au. Nagaya Tuli, thank you so much for joining me today. Absolute pleasure, Daniel. And to our listeners, I say thank you for listening to Conversations with Daniel Noor. Um, if you've enjoyed this podcast, I encourage you to subscribe on the Cradio website or on iTunes. And also share it with a friend who might be interested in the global refugee crisis and, uh, you know, the contribution of climate change to that issue. Also, do us a favor and give us a five-star rating. The way the iTunes algorithm works is that any episode you rate highly is more likely to be seen. And that helps us to get the good word out there. Finally, subscribe to the Cradio newsletter by clicking subscribe on cradio.org.au. Bye. You've been listening to an episode of Conversations with Daniel Noor. And for more episodes of Conversations and for more talks, interviews and shows, visit cradio.org.au.